there are a lot of difficult things that people face in life, like walking in and not finding a stage set up for you. Uh, but there's also other things like losing a job, uh, finding out that your health isn't what you thought it would be, hoped it would be, being falsely accused of doing wrong, or having to see your Kansas City Royals go through yet another rebuilding season. I mean, yeah, the pain is real. Uh, it sounds like only Linnell is with me on this. Um, I'm alone. Okay. So good, I got my son. You know what else would be really tough to face? Having a child who refuses to grow up. Like, there's nothing more painful than having a 10-year-old throw themselves down on the floor and throw a little temper tantrum like a 2-year-old. Or, or seeing an 18-year-old sulk like a 4-year-old because they didn't get their way. I think I'd rather have 30 years of futility by my royals than to face that from one of my children. That would be tough. But if I'm honest... Sometimes I am like a child who refuses to mature, and so are you. When you don't get the promotion, you unintentionally take it out on your kids. Or when you see your neighbor get a new car, and you look at your bank account and realize there's no way you would get a new car, you sulk in front of your TV, where there's just more car commercials to remind you of your pain. Or when your sibling starts telling you all about their Hawaiian vacation, and yet your job is so demanding, you couldn't even get the time off to go and do the same. You just, you really struggle to share in their joy. Sometimes we are like kids who refuse to mature. That's why last week during this gospel series, we talked about the importance of thinking the gospel. Because where your identity is, it's going to affect what you then do in life. And so if you think spiritually like a child, you're going to behave spiritually like a child. And yet the scriptures teach us the exact opposite. And in fact, the, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to a church in Corinth, he said this to them. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. You see, God doesn't want you to remain a child. He, he wants you to mature spiritually. And the way you know when you've matured spiritually is when you begin to naturally do things that spiritually children wouldn't do. When you give up childish ways and you begin to live the gospel. So two weeks ago, we talked about the importance of continuing to learn the gospel. Because the more you learn it, the more, as we saw last week, you begin to think it. And now this week, we start seeing that the more we think it, the more we begin to live it. So before we jump into the scriptures, join me in prayer. So Heavenly Father, um, we ask that you be our teacher this morning. Uh, each and every person that is here today is at a different place in their life spiritually, emotionally, mentally. And so I'm praying that you do something that I by myself cannot do. You would speak to the hearts and minds of every single person that's here. For the person who is investigating Jesus, that you would help them to see this gospel and the importance of it and that they need to make it the center of their life. For the person who, who has grown up with this but right now is wrestling with doubts, that you'd begin to help them see the, the truth of the gospel. And for the person who's been walking with you for a long time and, and maybe is just kind of coasting along, that they would sense you calling them deeper. God, would you accomplish what you have set out to do today? 
so that each of us leaves here incredibly encouraged and full of joy because of who you are and what you've done and what you want to do through us, and that is to help us live the gospel. So Father, take these next few moments and do in us what you desire. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, if you brought a Bible with you, whether a paper copy or digital copy, open it up to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4. If you do not have a Bible, you feel free to go pick one up off the Give and Grow table. If you do not own a Bible, feel free to take one of those home with you and make it your everyday Bible. Um, but I want all of us in Ephesians chapter 4. If you're not quite sure where Ephesians 4 is, you can use the cheat sheet on the screen. As you're turning to Ephesians 4, uh, last week we were in Romans chapter 12. And I love Romans 12. Uh, in fact, if you were to say, Aaron, if you were to define what a Jesus follower looked like, like what would be the marks of a disciple of Jesus, I'd be very tempted to just open Romans 12 and start reading. And, and so you would think that after looking last week at verses 1 through 3 and seeing the importance of thinking the gospel, I would just continue on, verse 4, and move on, and we'd start seeing how Paul then calls us to live the gospel. However, we're going to do a series in just a few weeks from Romans 12 through 4, 15, and we're going to call the series, And Jesus. And we're going to see how God wants us to bring this gospel into everything in our life, into all of our relationships, whether that be in marriage or parenting or at church or at work, even in our relationship with the government, that everything we do in life, we need to realize that it's an and Jesus. Like we were to bring Jesus into each of these things. And so because we're going to study it in just a few weeks, it made me stop and think, well, you know what? It'd be good for us as a church family to see that this isn't just a Romans 12 thing, that this is a biblical thing. So where else can I go to help us realize that God is calling us to not just study the gospel and think the gospel, but to actually live the gospel? And I thought of Ephesians, because Ephesians is structured very similarly to Romans. Last week I told you that Romans is all about the gospel. And in chapters 1 through 11, Paul just goes on and on and on about what the gospel is, who the gospel's for, what it can do. And then in chapter 12, he made a turn. He starts turning to, here's now the implications of the gospel. Here's how it should affect how we live. Well, Paul does a very similar thing in his letter to the church in Ephesus. In chapters 1 through 3, he starts explaining the gospel. In fact, one of the most beautiful descriptions of the gospel is right there in Ephesians 2. If you want to continue to study the gospel to get it soaked into you, I encourage you, memorize Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Make that a part of who you are, and you will really begin to then live the gospel. And as Paul describes this gospel, he does the same thing as he did in Romans. In chapter 4, he makes a turn. And how do we know when he makes the turn? He uses the word, therefore. So pick it up with me in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Last week, when we saw in Romans 12 that Paul started with the word, therefore, I was telling you that what you need to do anytime you're reading in the scriptures and you see the word therefore, you need to stop and ask yourself, what is that therefore, therefore? Because therefore is a connector word. It's always taking what was just said prior and connecting it to what is about to come. And so like last week, we had to say, well, what was prior? And we realized it was the gospel, chapters 1 through 11. It's the same thing right here in Ephesians. 
as, as we stop and think, okay, so what was prior? It's the gospel, chapters 1 through 3. And so therefore, what does that mean we now do? How should we then live? And here's what Paul says on how we are to live. He says, you are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, he is not telling his first century readers to strap on some exercise sandals and head around the block, right? It's not that kind of exercise. I mean, that kind of walk. He's saying, you are to walk, you are to live. And notice what he says. You are to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, be consistent. If you said you were going to be a Jesus follower, you realize this gospel story is true, and so you say yes to the story and make this the core central part of your identity, then be consistent. Live that out. I think one of the reasons I have baseball on the brain right now and joking about my Kansas City Royals is because spring training starts this week. Uh, spring training just began uh, for pitchers and catchers this last uh, Wednesday, and today the rest of the team for the Kansas City Royals reports down to in Arizona. I kind of wish with this weather I was in Arizona as well. And the, uh, then they start practice tomorrow. And I, part of the reason I'm excited that it's finally spring training is that this has been one of the slowest off-seasons ever, right? Now, most of you are looking at me going, Aaron, baseball's slow as it is, all right? Big deal if it's a slow off-season. But, you know, for guys like me, yeah, it's been a slow off-season. What made it a slow off-season was that there were a number of free agents that were, uh, that, you know, their contracts ended with their teams, and they were available to sign with any team at all. And a lot of them are still unsigned. Like, traditionally in the past, these guys would be snatched up like this, and they would just get buku bucks for it. And suddenly, everything's on a standstill. And so I actually prepared my message to use an illustration because one of the guys, Eric Hosmer for the Royals, was unsigned until last night. <laughs> I woke up this morning to the news that Eric Hosmer just got signed to the San Diego Padres, no longer my Kansas City Royals. And the Padres gave him a lot of money, $144 million over the next eight years, I think. Uh, I think Eric's going to do just fine uh, financially in the rest of his life. Um, Eric was an all-star for the Kansas City Royals. Uh, he, he was drafted by them, came up through their farm system, and as a young guy, he helped lead the Royals to the 2014 World Series and helped them win it in 2015. One of the most iconic moments was when Eric Hosmer was on third base and a play was being made at first, and he dashed for home. And if the throw had been accurate... It, he probably would have gotten out, but because they were so surprised that he would even try it, the throw was way off, and he scored the winning run that led the Royals to beat the Mets in the World Series. So Mets, I mean, Royals fans love Eric Hosmer. They, they, many people were clamoring for them to re-sign him. It's just, my Royals are a small market team. They don't have the money. Now, Eric not only had these iconic moments, but he won four gold gloves, which means he was considered the best first baseman in all of the American League. He also, this last year, I think finished like third or fourth in batting average. So he's really good at the plate. So he's not just a good defensive you know, first baseman. He's also really good at the plate. So of course the, the Padres are going to throw $144 million if he can help them maybe get to the World Series. But imagine if tomorrow Eric shows up at San Diego's spring training and he says, hey, thanks for signing me. This is great. I'm super excited. However, I've been playing first base a lot. I'm, I'm getting a little tired of it. You know what I want to do? I want to be a catcher. 
Like, all the gear, you know, put on the face mask and the pads. Like, that would be so much fun. And get to call the plays and throw your fingers down. That would be so much fun. So I, I'm done being a first baseman. I want to be a catcher. The Padres would look at him saying, what, what do you mean? You've been honing your craft to become the best first baseman in all of baseball. Why do you want to now switch to being a catcher? I mean, you might be decent, but you won't be great. Or, or let's even make the story even crazier. Let's say Eric shows up at spring training and says, guys, you know what I've been working on all offseason? My three-point shot. I can drain it like 75% of the time. Or maybe he says, you know what I've dreamed of? I want to become a linebacker. Like, I just want to tackle somebody. And the Padres are looking at him like, no, 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 no. This is baseball. You're not allowed to tackle, right? It, you'll be kicked out of the game. God wants you to be a major league Jesus follower. He doesn't then want you dabbling in NBA and NFL things. He wants you to be who he's called you to be. He wants you to walk in a manner worthy of that which you've been called. He wants you to live the gospel. And God says through Paul five different ways that you are to live this gospel, to help you live it consistently. And it starts right there in verse 2. The first way he says to live out this gospel is with all humility. With humility. I think we sometimes have the wrong definition of humility. I think sometimes we think of humility as thinking lowly of yourself. And so in order to be humble, you have to like put yourself down, enter into self-deprecating humor. You know, you, you just tear yourself down. That, that somehow that is being humble. That's not being humble. Humble is not thinking lowly of yourself. Humble is thinking less of yourself. And when you think less of yourself, you now have room to think more of others. That is humility. And if you need an example, you need to go no further than Jesus. When you look at the gospel, you see the humility of Christ. I mean, when you look at his life, you see him feeding the 5,000, taking care of others. You see him healing the sick and the blind, giving of his time and his power. You, you see him teaching the masses. In fact, there's a story where Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, is beheaded. And Jesus hears the news and is sad, and he wants to get away with his disciples. But as he's coming to this remote location, there's a crowd waiting for him. And the scriptures say that he sees the people like sheep without a shepherd. Because he was not thinking about himself, he was thinking of others he stopped and took care of them, teaching them, healing them, ministering to their needs. But ultimately, we see this through the cross. You see, Jesus is the only human to have ever lived completely sinless. And yet, he went and died. Not for his sin, for our sin. He thought less of self to think more of us. That's why Paul, when he was writing to the church in Philippi, when he starts talking about their need for humility, he starts describing Jesus. Here's how he kind of starts. Chapter 2, verse 4. It says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. So there it is. There's the definition of humility. So now with this idea of humility in mind, notice how he goes to Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice how humble he was. 
And that humility did not mean he tore himself down verbally. No, it was seen in his actions. He lowered himself for us. Humility is others-focused. So if you're going to live the gospel, if you're going to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, you have to do it with humility. But Paul goes on. He says you also have to do this with gentleness. With gentleness. I've told you many times one of the tools that I use in preparing my messages is the Luminous Study environment at Bible.org. I'd encourage you to go there, Bible.org, and then uh, just find the Luminous Study environment, and you can see a lot of the tools that I use as I I work on this. And part of the reason I like the Luminous Study environment is they have all of the notes for the Net Bible available. I I really enjoy the Net Bible. It's It's a good translation. But what I particularly like about it is all of their study notes. Now, you can go to, you know, a Christian bookstore or go on Amazon or, you know, christianbook.com, and you can find study Bibles, all right? They're they're a dime a dozen. They're all over the place. But what the Net Bible does is they have some study notes, but they also have some translator notes where they kind of tell you, here's why they translated it the way that they did. And I really enjoy that because sometimes they'll translate it kind of into more plain English, but there'll be a little note and you can go and look down and you see, oh, but this is what the Greek is really saying. And you start to understand a little bit more of why they did what they did. In fact, when the English Standard Version, which I'm using today, was being made, a lot of their translators went and relied on some of the stuff from the Net Bible notes. Well, as I was in the Luminous Study environment, there was a little number right behind the word gentleness. And so I clicked on it. And it said that gentleness could also be translated meekness. And there were a couple of cross-references with it. But then it had this sentence. The word is often used in Hellenistic Greek of the merciful execution of justice on behalf of those who have no voice by those who are in a position of authority. That's a lot. Let Let me read it again. The word is often used in Hellenistic Greek of the merciful execution of justice on behalf of those who have no voice by those who are in a position of authority. If you stop and think about it, that's some of the gospel. You and I had no voice because of our sin. We were spiritually dead. And yet Jesus, who had all authority, comes down and he executes justice. He makes sin pay for what it has done to God's creation so that we could be mercifully brought out and be given a voice again. Us who were helpless had someone, an advocate who came for us. That is gentleness. I think gentleness still takes into to, um, account our approach. The, the way we, we come to someone in our, in our conversation, the tone we use, the way we touch them even physically, that's a big part of gentleness. But man, this takes my understanding of, of, of gentleness and just explodes it, widens it. Suddenly I start realizing that part of gentleness is not just being gentle with the people that I'm close to and I love. Am I even being gentle with those who are put down? Do, do I fight for those who have no voice? Do I, do I reach out to those that our society is pushed to the fringes? The way I treat them, now I'm seeing the gospel. Now I'm living it out. That's why at Riverwood, we go every month to the, the Waverly Food Bank to help serve those that are in our society. Some of them have been pushed down. They're, they're given no voice. And this is one way we can be gentle with them. That's why we recently said yes to serving on the fifth Wednesday of the month for the Waverly uh, Wednesday night meal, the cafe. It, it's just another way for us to be gentle with our community. It helps us to live the gospel. 
So if we're going to live the gospel, we've got to do it with humility, but we also have to do it with gentleness. But notice next, third, he says that we have to do it with patience, with patience. I heard a great definition of patience this week. It is this, it is endurance even under affliction. If you are a parent, you understand this quite well. Like when your child is trying to tie their shoe and you just want to get everybody loaded into the car so you can actually make it on time to church and yet your child is saying, no, I do it, I do it. And it's the worst knot in the world. Like they get kicked out of Boy Scouts with that sort of a knot. And yet you patiently wait, letting them do it. You endure the affliction. All right, now some of you, you're not parents and you're saying, okay, this doesn't resonate with me. All right, but as I look around, I I think a lot of you have had roommates before. I had three roommates in college that God used to really help me grow in patience. My first roommate, he brought a TV, a stereo, and a dorm fridge, which in his mind meant he owned me. And so more than once, I could be in the the room studying at my desk, some music on the stereo. He would walk in, flip off the stereo without saying a word to me, turn on the TV, and just plop down and start watching. As if I wasn't even there. I had to grow in patience. My sophomore year, my roommate was an engineering major with a girlfriend, which meant he didn't get back to the room until like three or four in the morning. And so even though I wasn't going to bed until like two in the morning, he would walk in when I'm dead asleep, flip on the light, and just start carrying around as if I wasn't even there. I had to grow in patience. And then my junior year, I signed up to be an RA because RAs don't have to have roommates. But, room, but our college that year was so full that they had to assign uh, some freshmen to some of us RAs. And I got paired with a really nice guy, Andy, except Andy liked to go to bed at 9 p.m. I had a girlfriend that I kind of wanted to talk to on the phone. And this is way before the days of cell phones. And so the only phone I had was in my room. So I bought one of those really, really long cords so I could take it out under the door into the hall just so I could talk to my future wife. And I would be on duty as an RA. And I would need to be out of my room. And yet Andy would be in bed asleep, lights out. And I didn't want to be like my sophomore roommate. So I didn't turn on the lights and carry on as if, you know what I mean. So can you blame me for getting married before my senior year so I could finally get a good roommate? Oh, she's been the best. (laughs) Patience. It is needed and necessary for us to live the gospel. Because... The gospel contains the patience of God himself. Think about it. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God did not immediately squish them into human juice and start over. He was patient. As you start looking all throughout the the history of the Jewish people, you see so many of their sins against God, and yet he is patient with them. Ultimately leading to a place where he came and died on our behalf. God has been so patient with us. And I have a feeling a lot of you here who are Jesus followers, if you look at your life, I think some of you would be saying, yeah, God is so patient with me. If you're going to live the gospel, you have to be patient. So we are to walk out our calling through with humility, with gentleness, And with patience. But there's one more. In verse 2, he finishes it by saying, bearing with one another in love. It's love. But notice that phrase there before the word love. The ESV, which I'm using today, says bearing with one another. 
I found a couple other translations. I think the NIV, there was another one that had bearing with one another. Uh, the New American Standard had showing tolerance for one another. Uh, the New Living Translation, which is one of the translations we have there on the table, it says making allowance for each other's faults. And the Net Bible, which I referred to just a little bit ago, it goes so far as to say putting up with one another. Now, as I read all of those, I kind of saw fairly negative connotations. It's just like assuming that everyone around you is going to drive you crazy, and so you need to bear with one another, put up with each other. And that's because humans are always, maybe not always, regularly in conflict. And you put five people into a room, you're going to get ten different opinions. At least that's what happens when the Bird family tries to pick a movie. It's hard. There's, There's all this conflict. But as I was digging into this a little bit more this week, I discovered that the word that, that's used there uh, in, in the Greek for, uh, for bearing with one another, that phrase, it can be translated this, to sustain, to bear, to endure. All right, so that's definitely a part of it. But there was another definition. According to the Nestle Elan 27th edition of the Greek New Testament, the word can also be translated to hold up. To hold up. Now, I'm trusting that doesn't mean to, like, hold up a bank. I I think it means something else. How many of you are addicted to watching the uh, Winter Olympics, like my family? Okay, yeah, a few hands are going up. All right, now, this is where some of the conflict comes in, because the male species within the bird nest would prefer to watch things like snowboarding, skiing, curling, but the female variety would prefer figure skating. So the other night, we were watching figure skating, and uh, my wife and I are sitting on the couch, and it was the couple's short program. And I started noticing that they all were doing very similar pro- uh, you know, programs because there were certain elements that they had to do. And one of those elements was for the, the male partner to hold up the female partner. What if that is what Paul is getting at? That it isn't so much of just putting up with each other, but it's actually holding each other up, supporting each other, letting them know you're secure, I've got you, letting them be in the spotlight, letting it shine on them. Now, I'll be honest, I'm probably wrong because every other translation has it with that negative connotation. But I just love that idea of what if it is about us holding each other up, saying, I got you, I'm here for you. Because love always seeks to do what is best for someone else. That's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his son. God did what was best for us. He held us up. That is love. So if you're going to live the gospel, you got to do it with humility, gentleness, patience, but also with love. Whether it be to bear with one another or just to hold each other up. But I want you to notice, humility, it's thinking less of yourself so you can think more of someone else. It's others-focused. Gentleness, when, when you start realizing that it's about your approach to someone else, but it's also, are you giving voice to those who have no voice? Are, are, you, are you concerned for them? It's others-focused. Patience. Sometimes you have to be patient with yourself, but often patience is really about others. And love. If you're going to help hold someone up in love, it's about them. You see, Paul is using these things to drive to his main point here. And we see that main point in verse 3. The main point is unity. Notice Paul says, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond 
of peace. Oftentimes, unity is achieved by having a shared experience or, or a common goal. Like right now in the Olympics, uh, this, one of the events is hockey. Uh, these hockey teams, they have uh, unity when they're all working together for the same purpose. If one of the members is like trying to showboat, making it all about them so that maybe they get promotional deals later after the Olympics and make a lot of money, then they're not really being unified with the team. They're making it about themselves. To, to really have unity, you've got to, in a sense, shed off yourself to join in with the others for the purpose of where you're going. If you've been in college, you maybe had some unity with others. That unity was probably through surviving calculus class or going on a road trip together or maybe doing a missions trip. And after the experience, having this common goal, you experienced unity. Paul is saying that the church should have the same kind of unity. Because if you follow Jesus, you have experienced the gospel. And the gospel is what should bring us together. Because our spiritual eyes were opened to the death of Jesus on a cross, and that that was done on our behalf, that he was buried, and then on the third day rose again from the dead. And now we are offered life, a reconnection with our creator. And so if we've experienced that, and we experience that with others, it should bring us together. That's why Paul begins to hammer this home. Pick it up in verse 4 with me. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Did you notice how many times he used the word one? If you're a fast counter on the red words up on the screen, it's seven. Seven times he drives this home into his listeners, trying to help them realize you are unified. There is one God. That one God sent his one son, your one Lord, who died on the cross for your sins. He gave you this gospel. And if you believe in this gospel, you now have been identified with it. You've been, gone through one baptism, and you now are part of one faith. You are to experience unity. But if you've been part of a church for more than 2.4 weeks, you probably have noticed the church is not very unified. Like just globally, as we look at the church, particularly the American church, we don't see a lot of unity. We see a lot of tribes. We, we see a lot of, of you know, sex and, and discord. Yeah, you know, just some of the ones that I thought of. You got Arminians versus Calvinists. Uh, you got mainline against modernism. Even within denominations, you could have your Presbyterians versus your Assemblies of God. You've got rock-style worship versus traditional-style worship. You've got egalitarian versus complementarian, and on and on and on. We don't seem to be very unified, do we? But if we really stop and think about it, we actually have far more in common than we have differences. And that commonality is the gospel. It's Jesus. Now, I am so grateful that I can be up here today teaching this to you and know that I'm not trying to manipulate you to get someplace. There are some churches that they're experiencing discord within their own church family. And, and so a pastor would use a, a message like this to try and shame those who are against him to try and get, him, get them where he wants them to be. I am so glad that I don't wake up in the morning worried about what someone's thinking in Riverwood about me. I'm thankful for you guys, and I'm thankful for the, the health that we are experiencing right now as a young church. And so I'm saying these things not to try to manipulate you to get you someplace. I am saying these things to try to strengthen you. 
Because if we can continue to learn these things, to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient with one another, and to hold each other up in love, we can continue to grow stronger in this gospel together and continue to be more effective out in this community as we enjoy what God has given us here. But the only way we're going to experience it is if we have unity. And the only way we're going to experience that unity is if we are others-focused. It means we have to live the gospel, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, and love. But what if you're not experiencing unity? Like, there's other parts of life. Maybe you're having unity within your church family, but what about at home? What, what about at work? Well, what about at school? What about with that one extended member of the family? You're not having unity. What do you do? Last week, I took you through that fruit to root uh, tool. Uh, If you didn't hear last week's message, I encourage you, you can go and find that on the Riverwood website or just read chapter 9 of Gospel Fluency. If you need a copy of the book, uh, it's back there. You can feel free to take that with you. Uh, Chapter 9 describes that, that little tool, and it helps you to think through the gospel. I want to do something very similar, but today, instead of going through the fruit to root, I want to just walk you through how to apply Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 to this. And let's just pick an example. We're just going to use marriage today. Imagine you're married, and you and your spouse are not getting along. You're not having unity. Sometimes it's a momentary thing, like it's arguing over where to go eat or what color to paint a wall. And you'll get over those, but sometimes it goes a little deeper than that. Sometimes it could be over how to discipline a child. Or maybe it's over finances and and do you actually spend the money because one of you thinks you should and the other thinks you shouldn't. And and it really can start to become contentious. And in those moments, you find yourself wanting to lash out. You want to demand your way because you're right, they're wrong, and you just fight for it. So here's what you do. First, ask yourself, are you being humble? Are you living with humility? Are you thinking less of yourself so you can think more of them? Are you considering their interests, their needs, their perspective, or just thinking about what you think is right? Because if you will quiet yourself enough, think less of yourself so that you can now actually begin to hear them, it may help you begin to understand them. And I'm not saying that they're totally right and you're going to find out you're wrong. No, it may be such a case where you finally hear what they're saying, and now that you understand them, you can now speak to them. Because in order to be understood, you have to understand. And so humble yourself. And, and you can humble yourself because Jesus humbled himself for you. And so live out the gospel, show some humility, and truly listen. Also, are you being gentle? Like in your approach, are you letting your voice get that tone? like I do with my children, or are you being gentle? Bring it down. Because then they can hear you. Maybe you can begin to work something out. Are you being patient? Sometimes we just think, I, I know the right answer. I've got it. Okay, let, you know what? In this example, let's just say you are right. You married a very intelligent person. Do you know how I know that you married an intelligent person? They chose you. So if they were smart enough to choose you to be their spouse, they will be smart enough to get to the same conclusion that you have. So you can be patient. They will eventually get there. But also, in the heat of the moment, are you letting them know, I love you. I am holding you up. I got you. I'm supporting you. And no matter what we go through, no matter what decision we come to, I will be there with you. 
Because if you show that kind of humility, that kind of gentleness, that kind of patience, and that kind of love, you will experience unity within your marriage. And you will be stronger through the conflict. All because you chose to live the gospel. And this works in parenting. This could work at your job. This can work at school. This can work in many of your relationships. Now, I realize this works better in relationships where both people have a faith in Jesus. But I believe that the gospel is so powerful, it could even work in some of your relationships where the other person doesn't know Jesus. Because just as Jesus came to affect those who did not know him, did not have a relationship with God, I think that he can use you to impact those who don't know him. And when they see you exhibiting humility and gentleness and patience and love, they may just want to know the gospel themselves. And as they give their life to follow Jesus, suddenly you get to experience unity with them in a whole new way. So we've got to continue to study the gospel, as we talked about two weeks ago, which allows us to begin to think the gospel, that it just becomes the filter through which we view life so that it naturally begins to help us to live the gospel, that we will walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. So will you join me in showing humility, gentleness, patience, and love so that we can experience unity? So Father, I pray that you would accomplish this in us. Some of us here today, we're going to be very tempted to want to go and and apply these things, but we're going to attempt it in our own strength. And we're going to fail. And so, Father, I pray that you would uh, help us to rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would seek to follow you and allow you to help us to be humble, to allow you to make us gentle, that you would increase our patience, that you would help us to be people of love so that we will do anything necessary to, be, to work to maintain the unity that we can have in the Spirit. So, Father, do this in us, because ultimately it's where we want to be. None of us in this room really want to have contentious relationships. We don't like these sort of uh, dialogues. We, we don't like being in that place. Mm-hmm. And when we are in those places and we fight to win, we're not truly loving and we're not being like Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you do your deep work in us to make us more and more like Christ and that this gospel isn't just something we, we know about, isn't just something we kind of think about. It's something that we live because it's who we are. And, Father, I pray that these truths would impact the marriages that are in this room. I pray that it would affect us as, as parents, those of us who have kids. For those that are at college, it would affect the way they interact with their roommates and their, their peers for those that are in high school and and, uh, middle school, that it would affect the way they interact at the lunch table and in the classroom and when they hang out together in in the evenings or weekends, that you would radically change our relationships because of this gospel. Because we look at you and we see what you did for us, and that would be enough motivation for us to go and do the same for others. So, Father, I believe that our greatest joy is found in you. So we ask that you would help us to live the gospel knowing that as we do, you get the glory and we get the joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.